Tonight we're looking at 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. Father, we come to you in the name of the Lord Jesus. And Lord, we ask you to release the activity of the Holy Spirit on our hearts tonight. I ask you for the spirit of impartation. For those that are in this room, those that are watching this through the technology, I ask for a spirit of impartation on this most significant prayer that you gave the servant, your servant Paul. And we thank you in Jesus' name, amen. Now, one of the things that makes these prayers so important is the, is the fact that they burned on God's heart before he gave them to Paul or to any of the apostles. God's heart was burning with these ideas. And so he gave them by the Holy Spirit because he wanted the church through history. He wanted their hearts to burn and be gripped by these things that were on his heart. So tonight we're looking at session five, Paul's prayer in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, 2 Thessalonians. Chapter 1, verse 11 and 12. I'm not taking the prayers in order, you've noticed. This uh, prayer has remarkable language. I mean, the language is stunning in it. And this prayer, I want you to pay close attention and determine that tonight when you're done, you're going to like say, I'm going to work on this one. Because this prayer is one of the most neglected prayers in the New Testament. Because it's misunderstood. And the language is full of meaning, but the phrases are not familiar to us. So Paul gives a string of phrases that we look at and go, what? And so it's easy. I understand why this prayer is neglected. I rarely ever hear it prayed at IHOP in 20 plus years. Because it's a hard one to articulate and to get your mind around. But what I wanted to do tonight is demystify some of it and give some simple uh, takeaway points for, for, for some of this language that's unfamiliar. But the phrases are full. They're full of meaning. And the other point I want to make is this is one of, this is a, well, they're, all the prayers are essential for this hour of history. But this has a particular value for the end time church. This prayer does. I could say that for several of them, but this has particular importance for the end time church because it's a prayer of how to respond in a spirit of glory in the, in the face of persecution. And for the most part, much of the church isn't experiencing persecution. That's why this prayer seems a little bit strange or maybe old-fashioned, but actually it's just a little bit ahead of its time. It's not that it's old-fashioned. It's going to be a very primary prayer all over the church, not just in a few places where there's intense persecution. Let's read it, paragraph A. Paul prayed for the saints. Kind of the takeaway point is, it's really a prayer they would walk in the glory and the benefits of wholeheartedness. I mean, in one sentence, Paul's praying they come into deep agreement with God because these great, glorious things happen if they live in agreement with God. I'm going to say the same thing tonight over and over, but using different language because I found that 
Sometimes somebody says something, and I go, huh? And then they say it different. I go, oh, I get that. I didn't. And the guy says, well, that's what I said a minute ago. But I go, oh. So I like to give different language because it's different on-ramps for different personalities to uh, get their mind around the idea. So paragraph A, the second for, uh, sentence here, he prayed. In essence, they would be inspired to respond in a way worthy of the Lord. That's the essence of it is. And he connected this idea of responding in a way worthy of God to the ability to walk in the fullness of God's promises in their life. Now, everybody wants to walk in the fullness of what God's promised them. But that is a condition that flows out of a responsiveness. I mean, I don't know a believer that doesn't want the fullness of all the promises in their life right now. And Paul says, well, back up. You want to be strengthened to respond in a way worthy of him because that's the only condition in which the fullness of the promises happen in this life. Oh. Oh, wow. Well, that one preacher just told me, hey, praise God, the fullness is coming, and everybody shouted amen. But they skipped a couple steps. And I'm not saying that to uh, kind of be crass. I'm saying this. This is really a serious prayer here. Okay, we're going to read the prayer, and I have it on the notes about five times, printed because the language is so unfamiliar and misunderstood. And so just page by page, we'll read it again. You'll go, okay, I'm getting it. I'm getting it. Let's go through it one more time. He says, verse 11. Well, the big catch uh, catch word or word to alert you is the word therefore. Therefore, we're going to look at a minute Therefore, he's saying, in light of the five or six verses I just taught, therefore, and we're going to look at those five or six verses in a moment, but don't miss the word therefore. As the one preacher said, every time you see therefore, ask why is it therefore? Or what is it therefore? He says, we pray always for you. Well, that sounds like that Colossian prayer last week. He goes, I don't cease to pray this. That doesn't mean, again, that he prays 24 hours a day for this one prayer, but it means he doesn't let the seasons pass where this prayer gets off the radar. He keeps this prayer in the conversation, not all day, every day, but it's not one of those prayer requests where three years later he goes, oh, yeah, I got to get back to that again. He goes, this is one of those prayers I want in front of my people that Paul kept it in front of him when he prayed for the saints at Thessalonica. This is a city in Greece. Therefore, we pray always, and here's the confusing phrase, that God would count you worthy of this calling. God, wait, I thought salvation was a free gift. Is Paul confused here? I thought, how could we be deserving of the calling? Well, he doesn't mean deserving. We'll look at that. The word count you worthy is not the same idea as that you would eventually deserve it. That's not what he's talking about. And here's the thing that Paul wants them to connect, that they would fulfill all the good pleasure of God's goodness. That's a beautiful way to say walk in the full will of God, the full promises for your life. Let's read that phrase again. You would fulf- that God would fulfill, what a phrase, all the good pleasure of his goodness in your life. I mean, talking about just beautiful, and God's heart is there. He goes, what I've got planned for you 
is so good and it's going to bring pleasure to you and pleasure to me to release it in you. I'm not reluctant to release this in you. I actually really want to and it will absolutely fascinate you as this is released the good pleasure of the goodness of what I've planned for your life individually in the specific way as an individual and as in the general way as just part of the, the family of God. There's glorious general promises that are so glorious and there's specific promises but here's the thing I want to say. They're all anchored in goodness and they bring pleasure to the person when they unfold and they bring pleasure to God to release them to us. And he says the next phrase that God would release the work of faith with power. Wow. It's a big phrase. And then that the verse 12 the name of Jesus would be glorified in you. We sort of get that one. But how about this phrase? that you would be glorified in him. Paul, we're not supposed to be glorified in him. Paul says, yeah, it's what the Father told me. Pray it. I mean, what an interesting, well, more than interesting. but So there's actually four benefits, four things he focuses on, we'll look at later, that flow out of this prayer that you would be counted worthy. Well, let's look at the word, uh, the verse 11, therefore. Paul says, I'm praying this because what I just taught you from verse 4 to 10. I'm going to pray in light of what I just taught you. So we're going to take a minute, and we're going to go back to verse 4 to 10. Because we're going to gain understanding of this unusual prayer by understanding the context that Paul's praying it in and what happened and what he taught just before he prayed the prayer. So we're still in 2 Thessalonians 1. Verse 11 and 12 is the prayer. We're going to back up to verse 4. And we're going to go from 4 to 10, and then we're going to come back to verse 11 and 12 the prayer. Verse 4, if you read the whole context, Paul is he's boasting or he's affirming or honoring their perseverance. Now, when you read uh, New Testament, the word patience, in many translations, is the word perseverance. It doesn't mean like patience in your relational style, like, hey, don't interrupt that person when they're talking. Be a little more patient when you drive. It's not that kind of patience. Although those are nice things, important things. Patience, another word, is perseverance. Not quitting is the idea. He goes, I boast, I honor, I affirm, I, I tell everyone, all these other churches, how you have perseverance in your persecution and in your tribulation. And persecution and tribulation are the same general idea. Now, he's not talking about that they have perseverance just in the fact that they got some hard situations in life. That, that's important to persevere but they're actually being persecuted because they've taken a stand for Jesus and the implications of that in the culture. Now he says this unusual phrase. He says, your perseverance in your persecution, verse 4, here it is, verse 5, is manifest evidence, okay, is proof. It's the evidence, and we're going to show you why it's evidence in a minute. He's going to give you three reasons why 
Persevering in persecution is evidence of something. What is it evident of? What is it tokens of? What is it proof of? Well, we're going to look at three things in a moment. It's evident of the righteous judgment of God. Now, that phrase can throw you off because what he means by the righteous judgment of God, he's not talking about his punitive judgments. He's saying his judgments, his decision-making, his conclusions, his determinations. He says the fact you persevere in persecution is evidence that God has made a right, a wise determination in how, how he leads your life. A righteous judgment, a wise determination in his leadership by how he's leading you. You say, wait, if I'm being persecuted, that's proof that God's leadership over my life is wise and good. He's making good choices or judgments the way he's leading my life. No, it's the other way around. You know, I've told the Lord over the years, I'm an American. We don't do it that way here. We want it fast, easy, comfortable, quick, bigger, easier, funner, whatever that word is, you know. And the Lord says, no, I'm going to show you my righteous judgment, my good leadership is what that means. The judgment, my decision-making for you. I'm going to create the optimum environment for you to be transformed. And when all the information is in front of you one day, you'll go, that was brilliant, this is proof that you were leading my life in a good way. But in our natural mindset, it looks like it's proof God isn't leading our life. He abandoned us. So you don't want to lose this because of the unusual language. Paul says the fact that you're persevering and you're staying with it, it's the proof God's leading you and he's inspiring you along the way. He's not only leading you in the optimum environment, it's got pressure in it, but he's got glory resting on you and he's keeping you, he's sustaining you in it and you're getting transformed right in front of my eyes. And the good thing about that transformation, you'll bring it with you to the age to come and you'll have the benefit of it forever, the choices you made under pressure in this age. Now our natural mindset is, I don't want to sustain these rigorously godly, persevering choices under pressure. I want the pressure to left, things to get easy. And the Lord says, but gold is being formed in your spiritual life. You're doing spiritual exercises, push-ups. You're lining up with me day after day. I'm allowing the pressure, but I'm putting glory on you as well. That's why you're not quitting. That's the proof you haven't, the fact that you haven't quit is the proof I'm leading you and helping you. Because I know the end of the story and you're going to be so grateful I led you this way. Maybe not now you're grateful, but you will be. It will be so evident to everyone when all the information's laid out in front of you. Now, right now, we only have this insight because Paul gave it to us by the Holy Spirit. Our natural mind says, hard is bad. I mean, when they're persecuting us, that's bad. The Lord says, no, you're working a muscle. You're aligning with me. I'm helping you. Actually, I'm leading you. I've appointed you to, to face these difficulties of people resisting you because of your faithfulness to the Lord. Again, this is very contrary, counterintuitive to the Western culture. But it is the kingdom culture, and it's going to be global, this reality not many days from now, we can see the escalation of it picking up. 
and just to honor saints, many saints, like in China and different Islamic nations, they've been living in this for years. But the majority of the world outside of a few of these hot, these really intense places, they, this is new, this is foreign, this is like, what are you talking about? That's why this is an easy prayer to move past and neglect. He says, verse five, the fact you're persevering in your persecutions is the proof, it's the evidence of God's righteous judgment, his good leadership leading you and inspiring you along the way and adequately helping you so that you would be counted worthy, so that you would make choices befitting who Jesus is. You would make choices that are worthy of who he is so when you stand before him, he will be so delighted. You're not earning salvation, but you're making choices that so delight him. And we don't always feel his delight when we're making them. But he goes, when you stand before him, he will affirm. You won't believe how you will feel when he says to you what he says to you about the choices you made. You'll be counted worthy. You'll live in a way prepared to walk in everything the kingdom's about. And, verse 6, he's making a second point here. It's going to be manifest evidence that it's a righteous thing for God to repay with tribulation the people that trouble you. We're not going to unpack that right now, but in a few minutes. But I just want you to register it. He says, evidence number one of God's good leadership is you respond in a way worthy. You keep responding in a way it's transforming you. Evidence number two is that you believe it's righteous, it's wise and good that God's going to repay those people that are beating up on you. You go, why is that righteous and good? We'll get there in a minute, but that's evidence of God's good leadership. That it's righteous or right or wise that he pays them back. And, verse 7, another, the third evidence of God's good leadership in allowing you to face this pressure and sustaining you in it is that you that are troubled or persecuted, you're going to have rest. There's going to be a full recovery of everything you lost one day. And we say, really? And Paul's saying, if you believe these three things, that you will be made worthy or transformed, that God will repay those who came against you, and he will bring you rest or recovery of everything you lost, if you believe those three things about his good leadership, you will be anchored to face anything. And then he takes the prayer that he prays in verse 11 and 12, and he prays it in light of those three points. Now, I realize, because these are such strange terms and they're new ideas to most of us that you're already going, uh, what now? <laughs> I mean, I, so I worked through this prayer through the years. I go, Paul, why didn't you just say it a little more simple? You know, <laughs> It's a little tough to follow. Because the word righteous that he uses here, verse 5 and verse 6, means God's right or wise choices as a leader. Choice as a leader. It's right, it's right in that way. It's a good for you. It's good for the kingdom. It's right. He goes, and what's going to happen when it's all said and done? Verse 10, Jesus is going to come on that glorious day, the day. 
and there's going to be millions around the earth that have been responding in this right way. They've been anchored in these three points. Again, you might not have the three points in your brain right now, but I got them all in the notes over and over. This is one of those prayers you're going to have to take later and talk about and work through and have a discussion with a few friends and, huh, okay, I think I'm getting it. But there's going to be millions that are going to respond in this right way. And on the day he comes, he will be glorified. Because when he comes back, there's going to be so many people on the earth that have been lining up in a radical obedience to him, even under pressure. He will be so glorified. They will be trophies of his beautiful leadership. Their lives are trumpeting to the earth. He's worth it. He's that beautiful. He's that powerful. He's that winsome. He won me over because I saw him more. He's glorified in that sense. He's got so many people anchored in loyal, extravagant love for him because they've seen his leadership. And that's a trophy. That's a, that's a trumpet blast to the nations of how glorious his leadership is. He's going to raise up people like you to show unbelievers how winsome and how good of a leader he is because of the way you obey him with loyal, extravagant love, even under pressure. You're going to be the signpost. Now, Jesus can just come and there you have it. Everybody go, whoa! He goes, no, no, I'm going I'm to do the setup first. I'm going to have you display me before I display me openly in my person and then when I show, come to the, in the clouds, the way you've lived and my beauty are going to come into that, that uh, convergence and it's going to be so clear who we are together. And I will be so pleased and glorified. And you will marvel at me. I don't like the New King James, the, the, tra the translation I'm using. It says you'll be admired. Admired, I need a little bit stronger than admired. I like the New American Standard and other translations. Jesus will be marveled at in that day. And they'll say, we knew it was worth it. We knew it. Oh, my goodness. we got to, like, strengthen that word admired a little bit, you know. Well, let's look at it again. I mean, let's go on to paragraph one. And just so you know, there's so much repetition in the notes, I'm not worried to get through it all <laughs> because I'm just giving it to you again and again and again. So I'm going to take my time so you can maybe get the framework of it so then if you're really zealous to understand the phrases, I've got a little bit more of it written out there for you. Well, Paul, he, this is now we're Second Thessalonians. This is the second letter to the city at Thessalonica. Let's go back to the first letter to the city at Thessalonica. Paragraph one. Now, Paul had just been boasting or affirming how they've persevered, but he goes, let's go back. He wrote this. He goes, I sent Timothy to you to encourage you because they were brand new believers. In Acts chapter 17, the, this church at Thessalonica was actually started in three weeks Paul said he was only there for three Sabbaths, for 21, three weeks, 21 days, maybe a few more days, but three Sabbaths. Then he had to move on. He was driven out by persecution. But undoubtedly, multitudes, hundreds, maybe, I don't know, we don't know the number, but many people got saved, and Paul's gone, and they're all brand new believers. 
I mean, the pastors and elders are, you know, a month or two later, they're eight weeks old in the Lord, and the others are like six weeks old in the Lord. I mean, that's a rough situation. But he goes, I sent Timothy back, because you, I was only there three weeks, to encourage you. Verse 3, here it is. So that no one would be shaken by the afflictions, because they were really tough on Paul and drove him out of town. And so Paul's new believers, they're, they're persecuting them now. They're saying, oh, you like that, that preacher that was here last week. And they go, uh, well, no, well, no, we love his God. It's his, the Messiah. No, we're going to do to you what we did to him. And so Timothy came and said, hey, don't be shaken by these afflictions. But here's the kind of the surprising thing to our modern Western ears. For Paul said, for you yourselves know we are appointed by God to have persecution come against us because it transforms us. And it trumpets the glory of the message to unbelievers. When they see people loyal in love to Jesus under pressure, they go, who is it that they're worshiping that we don't know about? There's a bigger storyline to life. They're, they know something we don't know. There's something bigger going on. So not only are we appointed to persecution because it makes us work the muscle over and over and saying, Lord, I love your leadership. I trust you. Ouch. Wait, wait. Do I really want to stay true? Yes, I do want to stay true. Are you really worth it? I don't know. Yes, you are. I don't know. I just, it's that working of the muscle day by day in the face of persecution that changes us. It makes us worthy. It makes us befitting in our response to who he is. Paul says, I just want you to get this. He goes, I want you to know. He goes, and I told you clear. You were appointed to this. Now, again, this is hardly ever mentioned in context of a Western church. But I'm not acting all heroic. I don't ever talk about it much. So I, I'm here because this was the next verse on my list. And so here I am preaching on it. So I'm not uh, saying, well, at least I'm preaching on it because I haven't spoken much on this, but I'm saying this, FYI, you wait the next year, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, these kind of themes are going to be emphasized by the Spirit. He goes, verse four, we told you beforehand, and that three weeks I was with you, I told you you would suffer tribulation. I told you, and it happened just like I told you. I told you what, we need tender messengers that make it known to the body of Christ beforehand that tribulation, which means persecution, I'm not just talking about you lost your job because economics are bad. I'm not talking about difficulties in life because there's difficulties in every sphere of life and everybody's got some. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about specifically resistance because you're faithful to Jesus, because you're taking a stand on a certain point and you're losing something because of it. Maybe your job, maybe your friends, maybe your reputation, maybe there's an, uh, even believers might rise up against you and attack you, but that's what persecution is. So don't, don't lose sight of that's what we're talking about here. Well, just so you know that Paul didn't only preach this at Thessalonica, paragraph one, let's go to paragraph two. Paul went from city to city in Acts 14. He was strengthening the disciples, and they were all new believers. I mean, this is the early church. This is Paul's, 
you know, first missionary journey. He launches out in Acts 13. It's only Acts 14. It's his, I mean, they're all new believers. And he's going back to the cities that he traveled through. He's strengthening their heart. How? Telling them to continue in faith and perseverance is what he means. Continue in confidence in God's leadership, saying this. We must, through, and the word would, I mean, the idea is persecution, enter the kingdom of heaven. We must, through persecution. It doesn't mean you got to go go up to knock on somebody's door and offend them so they get mad at you because you, you can't get in the kingdom without it. He's saying when the kingdom power is, is really moving, demons will be stirred up, the spirit will be moving, and there will be persecution. But you enter the kingdom, meaning doesn't mean you're born again by deserving it. It means you're living in kingdom reality by standing steady in the face of that kind of resistance. Paragraph three. I mean, paragraph C. Paul identified three ways. I've already mentioned the three. So I'm gonna go through them real fast. In which God's judgment or his leadership. In this sense, again, judgment means his decisions, his verdicts, his conclusions. You know, I make my judgment, we're going to do this in the future. It's, it's that kind of sense of the word judgment. Paul identified three ways in which God wisely or righteously made these decisions over our life. That he would use persecution and he would use people mistreating us in sinful ways to transform and strengthen us. God determined that. I mean, the devil's very happy to, to, to uh, jump in, and we always rebuke the devil, but the Lord says, no, I've appointed it for my people. It will be a, that environment where transformation will happen in them, because I'll give them spirit grace for it, and they will be trophies of grace. They will magnify the grace of God and the beauty of God to unbelievers who go, what is it that you know? You got, if you don't have something to die for, you don't have something to live for. And there's believers raised up in the earth now. They're willing to die for this. So the unbelievers go, what is it that I don't know that you know? So they become pictures and trophies and statements of the glory of God. So again, Paul uses the phrase, verse 4, all your persecutions... Your perseverance, it's evidence, three evidences that God's judgments, his leadership in your life is wise. Three evidences proving, you think, well, it's not proving it now. And Paul would say, it's proving it because by revelation, I'm telling you his point of view in these three areas. Well, I don't feel that point of view is right, Paul. What if you missed it? <laughs> Paul says, no, this is from the Holy Spirit. As much as you get anchored in these three things, they will be evidence to you of God's good leadership. And therefore, the enemy can't get you offended at God. Because if we're not anchored in these things, the enemy is going to tempt us to get offended and say your leadership, in fact, is bad, God. It's not good. It's not righteous judgment and leadership. It's inadequate. It's deficient. It's, it's not good. You've let me be persecuted. Where are you at? And again, this is why the paradigm shift in the, in the Western churches must happen where we understand that God's actually appointed this as part of the transforming part uh, of our lives and as part of showing off the grace of God to unbelievers. 
Well, paragraph one, it takes spiritual insight to see this. Because our natural eye does not, does not see these three evidences. But Paul says, it's really clear to me. It's like shouting at me evidence because the Holy Spirit's made it clear to me. Well, we have here in Hebrews 1, faith is the evidence of things not seen. Meaning it's Holy Spirit has convinced our heart. That's the evidence. It's Holy Spirit evidence at the heart level. That's evidence because when the Holy Spirit marks you in a strong way about a truth that's invisible to the natural eye, no devil can shake you from that truth. It's evidence to you. Somebody else that's an unbeliever or they don't have spiritual understanding, they go, go, how come you're so rock solid on this point? You go, I have the evidence. It's really clear to me. And they go, what it? Where are you getting your information at? Well, the Word of God marking my heart by the Holy Spirit, that's evidence. Paragraph 2. And i got to get to the prayer. But the prayer is pretty simple if you get the concept behind it. <laughs> this passage, 2 Corinthians 4, 16 to 18. This, I want you to catch this, is one of the most significant revelations that Paul gave for the end-time church. Verses 16 to 18 here. I mean, he gave it for the church in his generation. He gave it for church history. This passage is so significant for the hour that's, that, that, that's yet coming. If we lock into this truth and the Spirit touches us to where we have that internal evidence because the Spirit's marked us with this truth, he gave it to Paul first, and it marked him. And to Paul, it was proof, proof positive, though nobody could see it with their eyes. He goes, you've asked the Spirit. If he marks you, it will be evidence to you too. Verse 16, we do not lose heart. We don't get offended. We don't quit. So many believers quit and get offended because they don't know verse 17 and 18. And, it, and I understand why we don't know it. Again, it's counterintuitive to our Western culture. It's opposite of what we think and feel. It's like it's often opposite of what we're taught in ministries, in our churches, in our back church background. Verse 16, we won't lose heart. We won't get offended. We won't quit. That's what lose heart means practically. Though our outer man is perishing, and he meant because of persecution, yet the inner man is being renewed. They're resisting us in our outer man and our circumstances. They're creating pressure in our outer man, our, our, human, our, our body and our circumstances. They're creating pressure. But in the pressure, we're leaning into God's leadership and signing back up saying, we believe you're good. We don't see it all, but we trust you. And the spirit, every time we do that is marking our heart little by little. We're renewed day by day, just a little bit. And I don't mean every day we gain ground, but just a little mark of the Spirit every time we sign back up and realign our heart. Here it is, verse 17. For our light affliction. Paul, they stoned you. Yeah, it really hurt. It hurt that day, and for the next couple of weeks it really hurt. But after that, it didn't hurt after that. Like, really? You're calling that light affliction? He goes, well, I'm thinking of the thousand-year millennial reign and then the billion years after that. Yeah, yeah. I'm going to walk in indescribable glory because I stayed faithful in love even though it, I didn't like it. 
So yeah, it's light because I've got revelation on what the score really is. Well, it seemed heavy to me. Well, that's because you don't know what I know, Paul would say. But you can know it if you stay with it. The Lord will mark your heart too. It's working. It's a light affliction, verse 17, a light persecution, which is only a moment. I mean, when he got stoned, only hurt him for four or five hours real bad and then three or four weeks. Really quick, like, okay, Paul. Man, you're kind of a Boy Scout, Paul. I mean, that's intense stuff. No, it's really, really quick. Yeah, but it happened a number of times in your 30 years of or whatever of apostolic ministry. I don't know how many years. I haven't tabulated it. I studied his life in depth a lot of years ago. I think about 30-some years. He goes, yeah, it happened a number of times, but guess what? I'm at the end of my life now, and I'll be in glory in a minute anyway. It's momentary. Here's the phrase, it is working for us. That pressure creates the optimum environment. It's negative, but where we changes the conversation we have with God. We're talking different to God when that pressure hits us. And we're trusting his leadership when our natural eyes can't see the benefit. And our inner man, it's working for us. It's changing us inch by inch, little by little. And it's going to result in an exceeding weight of glory in the age to come. When we stand before Jesus, he's going to lay out his response and his reward for loyal love under pressure. It, Paul said, it's, it's not, I always say it's a hundredfold return. Paul says, that's a little... That's a little skinny. It's like a thousandfold return. <laughs> it's a millionfold return. It's way more than a hundredfold. It's an eternal weight of glory. So, verse 18, Paul says, I've learned I'm not looking at the persecution and the difficulty. I'm looking at what's invisible. God's smile and the rewards and what's happening inside of my spirit just day by day, when I line up again, line up again, your leadership is good. Your leadership is perfect. I can't see it, but I trust you. And the Spirit's going, ooh, I love that. Every time you say that, the Spirit would, I'm just making up this term. I love it when you say that to Jesus. I'm going to touch you again. Because we're, we, we're looking at things we can't see with our natural eye. We're looking at his affirmation, his values. We're looking at eternity. All of those will be very evident to everyone when the Lord returns. But it's just, we have to trust the word of God and the spirit touching us between now and then. Well, evidence number one. He weans us from worldliness. Top of page two. We're counted worthy. He, the process makes us little by little keep lining up with him. Again, it changes the conversation we have with him. And look at paragraph one. The word worthy doesn't mean deserving of the kingdom. It means prepared for the kingdom, fit for the kingdom, suited for the kingdom. You're in line with the kingdom. You're in agreement with the kingdom. And you're getting more and more in agreement with what the kingdom's about. I mean, you, your entrance in the kingdom is a free gift. But the last thing I want to do is have the free gift in the kingdom, have 20, 30, 40, 50 years walking with the Lord. Then when the Lord returns... I didn't make choices that were in agreement. And so my inward life and my history in God is out of sync with the glory of this realm I'm stepping into. Paul says, actually, you're going to want to get in agreement with it now. You will be so happy then. It will be so worth it. 
when that day comes. Let's look at paragraph E, evidence number two, that God's good judgment, his righteous leadership is evident by letting you, by appointing you to persecution and letting you be transformed under the weight of that persecution by little by little. God's leadership is good. And the second proof, and this is like you go, what? Is that, verse 6, it's righteous, it's wise and good is the idea for God to repay with tribulation those that caused you trouble. You say, okay, why is it a good thing, a righteous thing that God repays? Because the Lord is saying this, I want you to know the consequences of what they're doing to you is very serious. It is terrifying, and it is inevitable if they don't repent. I am going to repay them. So what does that do to you? Number one, a lot of believers, when they get pushed back, I'm tired of this. I'm going to be like you and push you back. And the Lord says, no, 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 don't go there. A repayment's real. It's real. So we go, okay. We got the fear of God in us, okay? <laughs> this is evidence. The fact we believe that there is justice in the universe, in, the, in God's order, it's just delayed. That's all. So whatever you do, don't get into that feisty, that's a soft word, don't get into the same spirit that the persecutors are coming against you in to go back at them. Because Paul's saying, I promise you there will be consequences for that attitude. I promise you. So because of a verse like this and others, I go, ah, I better not do that. <laughs> because it's real. This is not a joke. And... Number two, because God says that it's delayed, I'm delaying paying them back. Why? I want them on the scene for a while longer because you're getting changed by them. But don't you dare take vengeance in your own hands. I want you to know I've got it covered. There's a cry of justice in the human spirit. The Lord says, I put that cry on you. I will answer them. It's delayed, so don't you answer them. But worse, don't you imitate their bad spirit. Now, a lot of believers do that because a believer persecutes a believer and then the persecuted believer rises up and pays the other one back in the same spirit. And I'm telling you, it's bad. Paul is saying there is repayment. It is inevitable. It is real. It is terrifying. Don't make light of this. And one day when all the information's out on the table, you will see it was my good leadership by delaying the payback. And it was my good leadership that convinced you not to be like them because they actually kept the pressure on you and you kept changing and being transformed by it. My leadership was perfect in your life. Well, Paul, you're not, again, you're not very American. This is not what we grew up with. Where did you get this idea, Paul? Evidence number three. That it says, verse seven. One is verse 5, the next evidence is verse 6, the next is verse 7. Evidence of God's leadership by allowing you to, bear, to be appointed for persecution is that he will give you who are troubled rest. There's going to be a full recovery because the rest isn't just the, you know, the cessation of the trouble. The rest is you enter into the glory and the reward. And because we believe that, because the Bible says it, and the Spirit marks our heart, all every time we line up with that, the Spirit marks our heart a little bit, we go, 
It's really worth it. It's full recovery. It's a hundredfold. It's a thousandfold. There is a day where it all comes back. Paul said, when it all comes back and you see the full reward and his pleasure, and you see that there are really consequences to the people who moved in that wrong spirit, and you see how much I transformed you because I allowed this, op- this situation and my spirit was helping you, you will say my leadership was perfect. You will say that on that day. But don't wait till then. Join in with Paul and say it now. Even though you can't see it with your eyes, you have evidence of it in your heart. Now, par- now let's look at paragraph F. We're still there. I di- I di- I'm going to read the rest of it. Verse 7. He'll give to you who are troubled or the persecuted believer. He'll give you rest, the full recovery. When is this going to happen? Well, not next year. How about in five or ten years when the revival comes? No, no, not then either. When Jesus is revealed, that's when the full rest comes. We're not talking about rest in our spirit, you know, like resting because we're living by faith. I'm talking about the full recovery. And that day he will come to be glorified by his saints. Because again, the day of the second coming, there will be so many believers in the earth that are living in unity on the inside with what he's like. This Christ-like transformation. It will be this convergence of him and the company that's with him and the angels and all the saints coming back and all the saints on the earth that have been in unity and they've been transformed through the pressure. And there's this dynamic family reunion But more than, I mean, in addition to the family reunion, there's unity. It's like-minded. It's equally yoked. It's, yes, it's vindication. It was good that we stayed godly under the pressure. Oh, it's so worth it now. Jesus will be glorified. And these millions, there'll be trophies. There'll be shouts, pictures of how winsome and beautiful his leadership is to the nations just as he's coming. Oh, what a beautiful picture. And he will be marveled at by all the saints. Look at paragraph one. Well, during the persecution, during, you know, and the persecution goes sometimes intense for a few weeks or a few months, and then it lifts, or maybe a year or two. Maybe the persecution is verbal. Maybe it's rejection. Maybe it's economic. Maybe it's physical. I'm I'm not talking about, I don't know, an abuse situation in a family relationship. That's not what I mean by physical. I mean, where like in countries of the world, they actually beat them up if they're believers. The spirit, paragraph one, redirects our marveling. From the things of this world, we start marveling at him. Little by little, we marvel more at him than we do at the world. That transformation's happening. Now here's a, a verse that we don't think about much, but we need to. Paragraph 2, John the Apostle said, abide in him or live close to him. You know, abide's a little stronger than that. But live close, that intimacy with God. Live close with him. Because when he appears, you'll have confidence. You won't be ashamed when he appears. There will be believers that the way they're living today, they will still be saved, but they will be ashamed of their lifestyle. They'll say, these last 10, 20 years, He was so good, and his word and spirit was beckoning me. I didn't let go of that stuff. I am so not okay that I did not let go of it. They're still saved. It doesn't say they're going to hell. They will be sad at their life choices on that day. They'll say, what? 
it would have been so worth it to break loose of those things. So worth it. But he says, if you do break loose of those, you'll have confidence. And I don't mean confidence that you're saved. Confidence that he's smiling at your your life choices over the last number of years leading up to that day. It's not about confidence of being in the family of God. It's about confidence that your life is pleasing to him. And that will matter so much on that day. A lot of folks, because they never think of that, they think, well, I'll just take my chances when I get there. Oh, when that beautiful man comes with nail-scarred hands, and he looks at you and says, I gave everything for you, and you're the darling of my heart. And you go, oh, I just stayed in these five things. Oh, man, it was stupid. <laughs> what was I thinking? Why isn't I listening? Second Peter, verse 17, talks about beware. Some of believers, they fall from their steadfastness. They're diligent for five or ten years or whatever. And they get weary, tired. Ah, the great promises I was believing didn't happen in the time frame. And they drift and then eventually fall away from their diligence. Okay, let's look at the top of page three. (coughs) Well, this is pretty repetitive here. So I'm saying, what I'm saying here in paragraph page three is over and over, what does it mean to be worthy of the Lord? It's not to earn salvation, but it's to have a worthy response. And I just say that several different ways. Paragraph B, right in the middle. Being counted worthy by God confuses some people. It's a confusing idea because we've been trained that it's salvation by faith, not by works. We're justified by faith alone. How could we be counted worthy? Because they're thinking, how could we be deserving of salvation? And Paul's saying, that's not at all what I'm saying. Paul wrote Romans chapter 3. He wrote those verses about justification by faith. He's not talking about being deserving. He's talking about living in a way that's in unity with God. Because it will matter to us now I mean, we'll live, feel different on the inside, but it will matter to us on the day when we stand before him. So there's two applications of being counted worthy in Scripture. And both of them, if you read the text, I, I didn't read it carefully, the very end of the prayer, Paul says, you're counted worthy according to the grace of God. So both of these applications are grace, are founded and fueled by the grace of God, both applications. So it's not like one of them is the grace of God and the next one you're earning it. Both of them are grounded. Their foundation and fuel is in the grace of God. So application number one of being found worthy of God, paragraph one, you can read it on your own later. You already know it. It's the free gift. You're made worthy because of what he did. You're in the family not because of what you did, because of what he did. Salvation's a free gift. Justification by faith alone, no works. Freely, you're counted worthy of the family. After that, now, paragraph two, we want to respond in a worthy way. Now that we have the gift of being worthy, acceptance in the family, let's have life choices that are in unity and worthy of his beauty and the way he loves us. Paragraph D. I'll just mention this briefly, and you can read it on your own. Jesus was the first one to, according to the New King James translation, he was the first one to 
promote the idea of being praying to be counted worthy. It's in Luke chapter 21. Yeah, this is an end time passage. He's saying, take heed to yourself. Don't let your heart be weighed down with carousing. That would be immorality plus other things like that. Don't let your heart be weighed down, I'll just say, with immorality or drunkenness or fears and all these things. But watch and pray so you could be counted worthy, not deserving to be saved, that your heart would be strengthened to live in a worthy way because he's coming in a few moments. This is Luke 21. It's an end-time passage. You could read that on your own. But I just wanted to tell you that this idea that Paul is praying, that he's praying you to be found worthy, actually is anchored in the teaching of Jesus. And it's that you would be inspired and illumined by the Spirit so you would be strengthened or found able to have a worthy response to him, befitting of how much he loves you. Doesn't determine that you get saved, but it really determines a lot of the quality of your life and how and what the Lord says to you on that day in terms of rewarding your life. And it has many implications past that, page four. So, last but not least, the prayer itself. <laughs> We're at the end, but the, the, the phrases are pretty, they follow pretty easy once you know the context. The hard part is the being counted worthy in the midst of the pressure. That's the part that's foreign to the Western mindset. But it's going to become mainstream before the Lord returns. It just isn't yet. It'll be a little while. And then you'll get pushback. And you'll, people will say, well, Jesus died for you, so you don't have to die to yourself. Jesus uh, paid the price for sin, so he repented for you. I've heard all these kinds of things from teachers with large ministries, you know, and people, yay, you know, I can live in immorality and drunkenness and be happy and be clear that Jesus is happy. Not. Okay. Let's read it now. The four benefits of, of having a worthy response to the Lord. Number one benefit, paragraph, we're still in paragraph A, verse 11, you will fulfill all the good pleasure of his goodness. Number two benefit, you'll have the work of faith with power. Number three benefit, he'll be glorified. You'll be a trophy of the, of the beauty of God to unbelievers and to others. Even other believers, you'll encourage them when they see the reality of Jesus in your life. And number four, you will be glorified in him. These are four benefits that flow out of this being inspired and illumined by the Spirit and signing up day by day to believe in his leadership in the face of pressure. These four things happen. Paragraph A, we fulfill all the good pleasure of his goodness. I mean, all of us want to do all the will, we want all that God ordained for us. And I want, you know, the way I've said it over the years, I want everything that God will give the human spirit in this age. I want it all. I want every promise of my life. And the Lord says, I'm willing. I want you to know it's my pleasure, Jesus said in Luke 12. It's the Father's pleasure. You don't have to apologize for that prayer. You don't have to reluctantly kind of, you know, tiptoe up to God and say, God, would you give me the whole thing? He goes, oh, no, it's my pleasure. Are you kidding? That's what it's about. But you've got to respond in a worthy way to me to enter into the fullness of what I have for you because the fullness of what I have for you is you reflecting me. And for you to reflect me to others, it's got to be real to your heart. You can't, like, 
not reflect me in your, in your inner life, and then all of a sudden people see Jesus through you. He goes, it doesn't work that way because he's the spirit of truth. I like paragraph two under B. Paul said, well, he put two phrases, two ideas together. He goes, I press on. That's that work of faith. We'll get to it in a minute. I press on to lay hold of everything that Jesus has laid hold of me for. Paul says, I was born again, and Jesus laid hold of me. Here I am. I got this sovereign calling. And now the Lord says, now you press on to lay hold of what I laid hold of you for. It's not automatic, Paul. You've got to respond. I love this uh, thing I have here about King David. Even after David stumbled, you know, I've told you that I've, I've taught the life of David a few times, and I, one message I gave 10 times where David stumbled in his life. And, and I'm, hopefully this is a joke. When I meet David at the age to come, I go, yeah, the only guy that ever preached that. Why did you do that? <laughs> Why did you put all 10 of them in one message? Well, I was trying to encourage everybody. Maybe he'll, he'll be happy about it, but... But here's my point. <laughs> here's my point is, he fulfilled all the will of God. Even in his weakness, he signed back up. He kept signing back up. He kept signing back up. And because of God's graciousness, and I call it the editing of the grace of God, it ends up he had stumble, failure, this, that, and the other. But over the 40 years, the 50 years, the 70 years, he died at age 70. He kept signing back up. And the Lord says, in the overall, you did it all. You fulfilled it all. Is that amazing? That's the graciousness of God. That's the point I'm making. Paragraph C. Not only are, do we want all the will of God, and I'm not going to contend, I'm not content with part of the will of God. I'm not content with, well, we got this far, let's just coast for a while. You want to be on your deathbed, if it works that way, praying for the double anointing. You don't ever want to just say, well, this is as good as it gets. Never, ever. Always contend for a double anointing of what you have now. Always, to the end. That's what Paul's praying, that you'd be worthy so you enter into the fullness. Paragraph C, the work of faith with power. This is a partnership. The work of faith isn't just, I have faith, therefore it happens. It means I'm in partnership with him. There's a, I'm working together believing you. So this is a partnership. And it also is magnifying the, the, the I mean, it's pointing out the magnitude of the power. It's called the work of faith with power. But I like to hit the partnership. The Lord says, I'm not going to just, it's not going to just fall from heaven on you. Paul, you have to press in to lay hold of what I laid hold of you. You can't just be idle. You've got to go for it. You've got to contend for it. I've had people over the years, they go, I don't like that because that makes me feel pressure. I go, it's actually supposed to. They go, I have this sense of pressure that if I don't press in, I'll miss out. I go, you will. I promise. (laughs) This is called godly pressure. Well, I thought I was saved by faith. You are. You're saved by faith. You're in the family of God for, and now the Holy Spirit is called conviction. It's godly pressure on your soul. You will miss out. Well, I don't like that. I want to go hear other people. I don't like that kind of message. Where's the grace of God? I go, that is the grace of God. The pressure, the convincing of you it's real where you can't let go. That's grace working in you. The devil didn't convince you. The grace of God convinced you to press in, to lay hold of. And paragraph E, the fourth thing, I mean, the third thing is that Jesus would be glorified in you. I mean, there's to live commensurate with who he is and what he's like. To live in a commensurate or a unified way with 
He gave his all. We gave our all. Again, our all is small, but we gave our all. We're looking at him in our weakness and our weak love, but it was all of our love. And he'll say, I know, I know, I saw it. I know the human frame. What a, what a privilege to be a broken human being that puts on display to other believers and unbelievers what Jesus is like, the glory of Jesus. My goodness. And then paragraph eight, that you would be glorified in him. What? The spirit of glory resting on believers. And of course, the ultimate spirit of glory is the transforming cross, Christ-likeness. The, the passage would be 2 Corinthians 3.18. We behold him, we behold his glory, and we're transformed to be like him. I mean, the glor- being glorified in him means being liberated from all dark thinking, all dark emotions, all dark ways, where we're living in the glory inside like he does. And, of course, there's the glory on the outside. There's the new Jerusalem. There's the resurrected body. There's the family of billions of saints with resurrected bodies in a glorious city in the presence of the Father. There's the glory on the outside. The food, the music is good, and the fragrance is amazing. That city is glorious. But I want to give you one more verse here, right here in paragraph 1. Peter talked about, and worship team, come on up. Peter talked about, and he goes, if you're reproached, in other words, they're slandering you or they're putting you down. Does it just mean physically beaten or thrown in jail? But if you're even reproached, they're saying, you know, you're just off the wall. I just don't even like your weight. From believers, reproach believers. If you're reproached because you stand for Jesus, the spirit of glory will rest on your heart. That doesn't mean you'll just walk, you know, on clouds going, oh, this is so amazing. Slander me more, please. This is awesome. No, there's a spirit of glory it doesn't mean it's euphoric. It means you have this sustained, this inward sustainability to keep moving forward. The Lord says, that's not your flesh, and that's not the devil. That's the spirit of glory operating in you. Because someone says, I don't know if I'll be able to uphold it. If, if people I love and know, they, they say I am off the wall, and they will. I promise you, they're going to. In the church now, the church, the Lord says, my glory will rest on your inner man. I will strengthen you. I will give you resolve. I will make it make sense to you to be faithful to me. And I'll help you. The spirit of glory. Let's stand before the Lord. Father, here we are before you. Lord, we love your leadership. Lord, we ask you to touch us now and stir us.
love your leadership, Jesus. Come unite my heart to fear your name. Come and unite my heart to fear your name. Let there be no sin in me that will keep me from this prize. It's because I love. Redirect my heart to marvel on you in this age more than the world. Let me marvel on you. I'm a woman. 
tenderizing of the Holy Spirit on the human heart. I ask for a tenderizing, a courage to re-engage with your heart in an intimate way. A new tenderizing of the heart. with the Lord. They said, it's not really happening the way that I want. But I ask for grace on the human heart, a breakthrough of intimacy at the heart level. Grace and Speak great. 
grace over this whole community right now. Ask for the prophetic spirit. Lord, ask for dreams and visions to multiply. Lord, we'll never let go of that. You said dreams and visions. Multiply, Lord, multiply it in their heart in Jesus' name. Breathe upon our hearts hearts by the Spirit, Lord. release a prophetic spirit on this house on those that are listening to us right now today tomorrow this week an increase on our children our grandchildren our co-workers dreams and visions you said i would give your sons and daughters dreams and visions for physical healing. Father, I ask you, right across this room, wherever there's sickness, I take authority over it. Wherever there's injury in someone's body, where there's a cancer, where something isn't functioning right, with you right now, the work of faith with power. We believe you according to your word. Across this room, Lord, I ask you. The web stream. I ask you, God, for the spirit of grace for physical healing. Right now, in Jesus' name. Your bodies and hearts, in Jesus' name. We take authority over every manner of sickness. We take authority in this room over every manner of sickness.
situation tonight right now 